Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artist, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. You're here with your host, Technicia, your favorite entrepreneur, been a radio host since 2013, love what I do, and motivating others is the thing that I love the most, always adding value, value, and service, service. That's exactly what I'm doing. But I know it seems a little awkward to most of you. I'm sending my show off at 3 o'clock. Things happen, but I'm glad that you're here with me. If you have any questions, you know what number to call in. 347-426-3751. Please share. Share with someone who this may add value to. Please share. You know, get the shares out there. Share it. Broadcast it. But I'm here today with Brian C. Wilson, who is the author of the new book, John E. Setzer, and the Quest for the New Age, is a professor of American Religious History in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. It was during his years in the Peace Corps that he developed a fascination with religion, initially by what he experienced of the ancient religion of the Maya of Roman Catholicism. Returned to the U.S., Wilson completed a Ph.D. in religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he studied religion in the United States. In 1993, he co-authored a book on new religious movements in California. After moving to Western Michigan University, Wilson wrote an award-winning book on serial inventor and the leading seventh-day advocate of his time, Dr. John Harvey Catalog. Based on the success of that book, the Fessler Institute invented Wilson to write a full-length spiritual biography of its founder, John E. Fessler. The Kalamazoo-based Fessler was a radio pioneer, Leo Magoo, and longtime owner of the Detroit Tigers baseball team. Yes! Of his many pursuits, however, there is one that is not well known, his long life spiritual search, which led from traditional Christianity to an exploration of a variety of metaphysical religions culminating in a new age. In many ways, the story of John Fessler's long spiritual search mirrors that of millions of Americans who sought new ways of thinking and being involved in metaphysical religions of the 20th century. In John E. Fessler and the Quest for the New Age, Wilson not only explores the evolution of Fessler's beliefs, but how he put them into action by permanently endowing three funds that will foster research into the scientific spiritual interface for years to come and help cultivate a more peaceful, loving, and inclusive world found on the principle that we are all connected to one infinite force. So without further ado, I love to thank bring Brian C. Wilson on. Brian, thank you so much Hello. for taking out time to be here on the show with me. How are you today? I'm great. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm glad for you to be here. I love having guests on who have new things to tell. I, I'm, I'm so happy for that. And you yourself, um, you have so much experience behind you and you on, like I said. Um, first and foremost, I guess I want to ask 
who is John E. Fester? Why are we focusing on him? Mm-hmm. Well, um, as you said in the introduction, uh, he was uh, a very successful businessman who um, made his money in radio. Uh, he was a radio pioneer in the Midwest beginning in the 1930s. And from radio, he branched out into television and cable and all sorts of media. And then uh, in 1956, he bought the Detroit Tigers, and he owned the team for over 30 years. So he's very well known, a very well-known figure here in Michigan, but not so well-known outside the Midwest. But as you said, I'm a professor of American religious history, so the reason I'm interested in John Fetzer is because uh, in addition to his business, he was also on a lifelong spiritual quest. And that took him through a variety of different metaphysical movements uh, to create his own worldview, essentially. And I think of it as a kind of proto-New Age worldview. And in later life, he endowed a foundation, now called the Fetzer Institute, uh, to carry on his, his spiritual vision. And the Fetzer Institute continues to this day doing great work. Oh, awesome. Um, what was he exactly like as a person? Well, um, I never, unfortunately, had a chance to meet him since he passed away in 91, and I came out to Michigan in 96. But uh, I talked to a lot of his colleagues, his friends, his relatives, and he was um, a very private person. And he, in fact, in terms of his spiritual beliefs, uh, he kept them very well compartmentalized from the rest of his, for example, his business life. And part of that was he was concerned that um, the kinds of things he was uh, interested in pursuing uh, might have been, um, what, a little bit worrying to southwest Michigan, which tends to be very uh, conservative religiously. Um, so in that sense, he was very kind of compartmentalized. But among those people uh, who were close to him and knew about his spiritual search, uh, he was a very open and curious and in, intensely searching man uh, who um, basically took, you know, took the path wherever his search took him. Wow. Now that's stepping out, definitely out on faith. Wherever your path leads you, you just go with it. Don't ask questions. Just go with the flow. Um what got him exactly interested in metaphysical traditions and alternative spirituality generally? Uh-huh. Well, he was uh, born and raised uh, a Christian. He was baptized a Methodist, and uh, he converted to Seventh-day Adventism when he was a teenager. Uh, his mother joined the church, and he remained with Seventh-day Adventism uh, throughout his 20s. But at a certain point, um, he broke with the church, and he kind of wanted to explore other religious paths. And one of the things he did is he traveled down to um, a spiritualist camp in Indiana called Camp Chesterfield, uh, which is still operating today. And there he met a, a variety of different psychics and mediums and became absolutely fascinated with the seance and different practices of divination and spiritual healing and that really set him on a path of kind of a metaphysical quest, um, because from there he got very interested in a variety of traditions, uh, including like theosophy and hermeticism and Rosicrucianism. And then in later life, he got very interested in uh, A Course in Miracles and reading something called the Arantia book. Uh, and in terms of personal practice, he got very interested in meditation, especially transcendental meditation. 
So it was really his his search after uh, he left uh, his his uh, early childhood Christianity um, that got him interested in metaphysical movements. There's another thing that got him interested, and that's the fact that um, he was always uh, a radio engineer, and he was fascinated by the fact that uh, you know radio waves, these invisible waves, could fly through the air, and people could pick up uh, voice and music, and for him that was magical. And he imagined that the electromagnetic spectrum extended beyond just simply what we could see and hear and, and feel and test and probably linked up to some kind of larger spiritual reality. And so he's always searching. That's why he was interested in the connection between science and spirituality. He was always interested in, in searching for the connections between the mundane material world and the spiritual world that he knew was out there. Wow. This man had a whole journey on his own. That's amazing. It is. Um, speaking on spirituality a lot, what is exactly did he mean by spirituality? Well, for him, uh, he believed he was um, believed the universe was essentially all one. And it was all okay. spirit and it emanated out from a great central source. And he believed that if people would make themselves open to the spirit, um, then they could follow it back to um, the, the great central or cosmic intelligence. And so for him, spirituality was um, a very simple idea that spiritual energies are circulating everywhere and are always available. And if you could basically develop your potential, both in mind and body, to connect with these spiritual energies, uh, it would re- lead to a, um, a spiritual enlightenment. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm trying to make sense of it. I am. Um, we talk about, um, I guess in the book, of course, even the title speaks on a little bit of, in what sense was Fesser a New Ager? Well, um, the New Age movement, which really uh, blossomed during the 80s and early 90s, uh, was uh, a kind of, what, loose confederation of people who believed in some specific things. Uh, one is in the unity of the cosmos in spirit and the idea that you could connect with it and um, basically achieve sp- spiritual enlightenment. But New Agers also believed that human beings were going through uh, successive cycles of um, spiritual evolution. So John Fetzer was one of the people who believes in reincarnation and past lives and that uh, human beings basically pass through multiple lives on their road to the great central source of spirit. But importantly, the reason it's New Age is because uh, New Agers, at least in the beginning, believe that individual spiritual transformation, if enough people became transformed, then that would cause Mm -hmm. a global spiritual transformation. And it's that global spiritual transformation which is essentially the New Age. Okay. I'm just um just calculating adding it all up in my head and making sure I got a great understanding of it. But um, uh-huh. What, uh-huh. what were some of the metaphysics? Well, one of the major traditions he was interested in is called theosophy. And theosophy okay. is a is a tradition that goes back to the nineteenth century and it began with um uh, a Russian medium named Helena Blavatsky, uh, who got together here in the United States with a Civil War colonel named uh, Henry Steele Olcott. 
And they decided that they were interested in kind of exploring the world's spiritual paths. And one of their goals was to unite Western spiritual knowledge with Eastern spiritual knowledge. And so theosophy basically developed into a tradition that blended Western esotericism with um, Hindu and Buddhist ideas. And for a time there, in the early 20th century, it became incredibly popular, uh, both here in the United States and in Europe and in India. And the tradition exists to this day. It's still a thriving tradition. But in the United States, it basically broke apart into multiple different theosophical traditions. And so Fetzer was really very interested in, in reading about each one of these different um, schismatic theosophical groups. And it's from them he got this idea of individual spiritual transformation leading to global spiritual transformation and this idea of the New Age, uh, which was being talked about by theosophists well before we were talking about the New Age movement in the 1980s and 1990s. Wow. Um, now, what were some of his actual spiritual practices, though? Well, um, some of the most interesting have to do with his business. Um, he, as I said, he, he kept it very compartmentalized. Most of his close business colleagues didn't know about his spiritual beliefs, but he did use um, various techniques to uh, make business decisions. And one of the most famous was he would carry around a pendulum and he believed in the power of, of mind over matter and that you could use that to basically answer uh, kind of very simple yes, no questions. And whenever he had a decision to make that he wasn't quite sure of, he would pull out the pendulum and that by asking a series of yes, no questions, he could come to a greater degree of confidence uh, about what the right decision was. Um, he also thought that his business success was due to his intuition, which he thought of as a kind of um, extrasensory perception in a way. Um, one of the most interesting ways he blended his business with uh, his spiritual beliefs is um, during the 1970s, uh, John Fetzer got very interested in transcendental meditation and began meditating. And he was great friends with the Maharishi Yogi, the, the man who brought Transcendental Meditation to the United States. And so John Fetzer thought, well, this would be of use to the baseball team. And so during the, I think it was the 1974 uh, spring training, uh, he offered uh, classes in Transcendental Meditation to the ballplayers. And some of them took it up and continued practicing Transcendental Meditation for a long time. Um, Fetzer himself continued meditating in a variety of different traditions until, in fact, the last day of his life he was meditating. So meditation for him was tremendously important for his kind of daily life, but also for his business life. It's amazing how long this meditation has been around. And just listening to it, it seemed like it was... Yes. Um, um, Fetzer was aware of uh, a variety of different meditation traditions uh, early in the 30s and 40s and 50s, but only really started practicing in the 70s. And I think part of that was because uh, after kind of the, the counterculture of the 1960s, um, people were open to uh, other spiritual practices than the ones they knew. And meditation fit the bill. It was something you could do privately. It's something you could do intensively. Uh, it had 
not only um, mental benefits, if you will, and spiritual benefits, but if you're practicing, for example, yoga, it also had physical benefits as well. Oh, okay. Um, you, you know, Brian, his story is so interesting. I mean, this was a man who was into radio. At 10, he was creating his own first radio um and, and y'all put me in the mind of where I'm starting that, you know, creating your own radio show out of his own dorm room. Uh-huh. And now he ends up going on this path. We go from then into radio and going on this path. God is so powerful because I have had so many guests on that started somewhere else and then supposedly God spoke to them and they end up on different paths. I recently had a radio show with a young lady who is a divorce lawyer, and she ended uh-huh. up getting on a spiritual path it's amazing. They always, my mom always used to tell me, you don't get the last say so down here. You're, everybody's got a mission. <laughs> well, my own personal life is kind of interesting in that way because um, uh, what I studied in college was uh, medical microbiology. That's why I got my bachelor's degree in. And I always okay. thought I was going to go off to medical school. But I decided for a variety of reasons uh, to get a little bit more experience with the world. And so that's why I joined the Peace Corps. And it was while I was in the Peace Corps that I was exposed to, I went to Honduras for a couple of years. I was in the Dominican Republic. And so uh, I was exposed to a variety of Christianities, especially Catholic Christianity. Um, In Honduras, uh, the religion of the Maya became very interesting to me. And in uh, Dominican Republic, um, I lived in a community with lots of Haitians. So they were practicing Catholics, but they were also practicing voodoo, which I found very interesting. So when I got back, uh, I decided to abandon my plans to become a doctor and to study religion uh, as my profession. Oh, awesome. And I mean, he, oh, his life story is wonderful, though, when you read it about how he had to make his decision after college, after graduation. He had to make his decision mm-hmm. on whether he wanted to graduate training elsewhere or continue in radio. I mean, so young with a mind like his. Yes. Yes. Well, he got a tremendous opportunity because um, he, as an undergraduate, had a little uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventist College in in, uh, Berrien Springs, Michigan, he was asked to put together a radio station from scratch. And so he basically, during his four or five years at, at, it was called Emanuel Missionary College, uh, he got to do everything in radio. He got to do the the engineering. He got to do the programming. uh, He was on-air talent. Uh, It's just amazing the things he did. And then he graduated uh, thought he was going to go off and go to school and get uh, a higher degree in radio engineering. And he was offered the, um, the chance of buying the license uh, for the radio station he had built. And so he scraped together some money and bought it and set up shop uh, down the road in Kalamazoo, Michigan at WKZO. And it's from that little kernel he built up his, his radio empire. So, yeah, you never know where life is going to send you. And for Fetzer, it, um, it, it sent him in directions that he could have never imagined uh, growing up as a kid in Indiana. Right. Um, I was just thinking, Brian, you said he ended up, you said he ended up buying the radio station. I wonder how much that was um, years ago, just to buy a radio station. 
Well, I think the uh, I've heard various estimates uh, anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000. And of course, today, I imagine a radio license is in the millions. But uh, for him back then, uh, even $2,500 was a lot of money. But it turned out to be a, a really good investment for him because he parlayed that into millions over time. And by the time he died, he was one of uh, Forbes magazine's 400 wealthiest people. Mm. Um, did he ever believe that um, science and spirituality necessarily conflicted? No. I think from an early age he believed that science and spirituality ultimately uh, would be reconciled. Um, he didn't believe that okay. – um, he believed that the, the science could go so far. It could go so far in the material and the empirical world – but if it really wanted to go farther, it had to have a spiritual component. And so that's one of the things he wanted to do with his uh, foundation, the Fetzer Institute, at least in the beginning, was to come up with ways of scientifically proving the reality of spirit. So for him, there was never any conflict. Okay. Now, because um, throughout reading the book, I see that he was, so fascinated with the paranormal world, um, and mm-hmm. it freaks me out. But I love, I love that interesting topic too. It's weird, but maybe uh-huh. I took on such a relationship of that, and, and and for decades too. The pendulum yes, he, and the Ouija board. He became fascinated with kind of paranormal phenomenon and parapsychology in the 1950s. And when he started uh, really funding up his foundation in the 1970s, uh, the first thing he wanted to do was to fund parapsychological research, uh, which they did for a number of years. Um, They studied uh, all sorts of things, ESP, uh, psychokinesis, um, uh, just all sorts of interesting kind of paranormal phenomenon. Um, Over time, though, John Fetzer got um, kind of frustrated with the research because it really wasn't showing the results he wanted. So during the 1980s, he um, shifted the funding and started uh, looking at various forms of alternative medicine and alternative health. Okay. Now, um, what did he actually believe was the connection between mind, body, spirit, and health well-being? Well, uh, he was a holistic thinker before people started using the word holism. Uh, He really believed that um, the human mind had tremendous kind of God-given powers and that to some degree it could have a a huge impact over our our daily lives and and the material world. Um, He loved uh, new thought thinkers, um, 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 people like uh, Norman Vincent Peale uh, and those folks. And so he really felt that um, one of the keys to a happy life uh, was to have a healthy mind. And uh, he was very interested in, that's one of the reasons why he was interested, for example, in meditation, because meditation was a way of centering the mind and creating a calmness that, if you achieved it, could then influence the rest of your life. And so he believed that there was an intimate connection between body, mind, and spirit, and that we could, through a spiritualized science, really learn a whole lot more about how to heal the body and keep it healthy if we investigated 
the mind part and the spirit part. Okay. Okay. Um, did he he relies so heavily on spiritual advice and childless? Why so? Because even in the part where he was so fascinated with the paranormal world, mm-hmm. um, he relies plenty of psychics they was talking about throughout here. It's so many of them. Yeah, um, I think to some degree he believed he had some psychic ability, um, but he didn't really think he was, um, I don't know how to put it, like a psychic genius or anything. So he relied quite a bit um, on other people who uh, had proven that, to him at least, that they had psychic ability. Um, He had a few kind of psychic or religious experiences during his life, but they were kind of few and far between. And so he um, was really interested in, in, especially later in life, relying on um, channelers to help him basically channel what he thought was knowledge from higher beings, ascended masters, etc., uh, in order to advise him, especially in the, the planning and, and um, running of his um, foundation. And exactly... How did his belief and reincarnation and past life impact the way he lived his own life? Well, he, um, from an early time, probably from the 1930s, uh, believed in reincarnation and believed that he had gone through a series of past lives. Um, He Uh believed specifically that he had a specific mission that he was pursuing um, through these tra- past lives, and he believed his past lives basically extended all the way back to Atlantis. Um, and the goal was to um, basically uh, uh, create um, some kind of organization to promote the global spiritual transformation. And so um, he believed that uh, his various past lives were all kind of experience leading up to his present life. Uh, in order to make this um, this mission of his global spiritual transformation a, a success, um, he also believed um, in something called group uh, reincarnation, and that's where uh, various people in your life um, have also been reincarnated, but their past lives too parallel your own. So he believed that his closest colleagues had been working with him uh, throughout uh, the thousands of years of his past lives. Uh, to help him basically achieve this um, this organization in order to encourage spiritual transformation, um, he hoped that his his present life was his his last reincarnation, and that that the institute would be a success, and basically he'd be freed to go on to higher spiritual development beyond the earthly plane. And just reading throughout the book, you know, how spiritualism is spread so much. This was going on during the decade of the 1850s. I would never have thought that people during that time would have believed in such things. Um, Not at all. But that seems that was, as you were saying in the book, that was the strongest in the growing cities of the region. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. No, spiritualism was a tremendously popular tradition. Um, it um, there are, it has a couple of roots. It comes out of uh, earlier um, religious and spiritual tra- traditions, especially something called Swedenborgianism 
and mesmerism, which we get this idea of hypnotism out of. And ideas from those traditions coalesced in the United States into a religious tradition that basically focuses on the ritual of the seance and the communication between departed spirits and living people. And from the 1840s on, it became one of the fastest growing religious traditions in the United States. And after the Civil War, with its horrendous cost and, and the number of, of people who died, um, it also kind of it, it became even more popular because you had people who were bereaved and wishing to um, contact their the spirits of their dear departed. Um, there was a spiritualist church in the United States, which actually still exists to this day. And there were also these um, spiritualist camps like Chesterfield. And they were modeled on the old revival camps of evangelical Christianity. Um, and people would actually come and camp out for a time, for a couple of weeks, for a month. And in the spiritualist camps, then they would have the opportunity to visit uh, a variety of spiritualist mediums. So it was a huge tradition, uh, not so big anymore, but it still exists. And there are several spiritualist camps around the United States, um, one in Florida, one in upstate New York, and then, of course, Camp Chesterfield in Indiana. Wow. I mean, because all this is talked about in the book, the Indian, Indiana spiritualists, we we got the Quakers, um, mm-hmm. Quakers, everything. Spiritualism was real big. I I would never have known that um, to be so true. Um, and I noticed um, there was one name that stuck out, Nikola Tesla. Um, mm-hmm. People always, yes, that caught my eye too. I'm, He's a very yeah, interesting character. He is. Well, Tesla was a um he was a Slovenian by birth. He came from what used to be Yugoslavia and he was a electrical genius. Um and he came okay. up with um the uh, what the alternating current motor which revolutionized electrical motors. Um but he had all sorts of interesting ideas of for example using the earth as a giant capacitor so that um anybody around the world could essentially just kind of tap into the earth and draw electrical current. So energy would be free for everyone. Um, He also came up with machines to basically uh, transmit uh, electrical energy over a distance um, without wires. And this was tremendous technology for the time. This is the late 19th, early 20th century. And of course it's out of these ideas that we eventually get radio And the invention of radio is credited to um, Marconi, rightly so, but the ideas behind it actually go back to Tesla. Okay. And then somehow Fester, he ended up in that mix where he created his own radio. Um, Yes. He he never actually achieved what Marconi did, but the idea of of broadcasting um, radio energy uh, over the air and capturing it uh, was an idea that was first developed by Tesla. And then Tesla, who became something of, of a recluse in his later life, um, all sorts of myths basically grew up around him that he had revolutionary technologies uh, that would um, basically revolutionize uh, American life. Um, 
that he was keeping secret and that the government didn't want people to know about. So this whole kind of interesting mythology grew up around Tesla. And for a variety of reasons, uh, spiritualists and theosophists and a lot of other people um, have claimed to have contacted Tesla in the afterlife uh, and gotten new technical information. Now, none of this has actually panned out, of course, um, but Tesla has become a favorite uh, among psychics and, and channelers and mediums of all kinds. And no one was afraid during these times. You know, we all, uh, growing up, I heard of stories like witchcraft, voodoo, and no one feared any of this. Well, um, I think some people did. Uh, that's the reason why John Fetzer was um, so circumspect about his his spiritual beliefs. Um, there were people who, who feared these things. Um, as you mentioned, one of the things that John Fetzer used uh, in his daily life was the Ouija board. And a lot of people to this day uh, think of the Ouija board as a, as a kind of dangerous instrument. And John Fetzer himself uh, never used it without a, a companion working with him. Um, so, yeah, people were um, and still are uh, um, afraid of these, some of these ideas, some of these things. Um, but John Fetzer was pretty fearless in his exploration of just about everything that was out there. Okay. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to end up taking a short commercial break. We're going to come back with Brian because I'm definitely intrigued in this, and I don't want anyone to go anywhere. Do not forget to call in at 347-426-3751. And when we come back, we'll give you more details on where you can purchase the book. So please, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after this commercial. Thought it was over? Not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Blog Talk Talk Radio, baby. Listen, my life changed because someone was there to get me to use drugs. No one can understand. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. I'm realizing that I... I need help. I'm listening. I need help. I'm realizing that I think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to understand. No one can get me to use drugs. My life changed because someone was there to listen. One in seven Americans will struggle with addiction during their lifetime. Want to know how you can help? Go to heretolisten.com for tips and tools to help turn addiction around. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council. All right, we're back with Brian, who is the author of the new book, John E. Kessler, and the quest for the new age is, and he's a professor of American religious history in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. And in this book, Wilson not only explores the evolution of Fester's beliefs, but how he put them into action by permanently endowing three funds that will foster research into the scientific spiritual interface for years to come and help cultivate a more peaceful, loving, and inclusive world found on a principle that we are all connected through one infinite force. And I'm telling you, I have been having an intriguing conversation with Brian, and it's just amazing. So if you're watching or listening to the replay, please make sure you share with someone about you. Um, really do appreciate that part. 
Um, I guess I want to ask Brian on this. Mm-hmm. Um, for Professor, what was the spiritual meaning of wealth for him? Well, um, Fetzer uh, was incredibly successful and beyond his wildest dreams. And throughout his life, uh, he really was very thoughtful about how he should use his money. Um, and it's interesting because even though he was a multimillionaire, he lived uh, a very, very um, what frugal life. Uh, he didn't have the private jet or the private car. I mean, the you know the chauffeur-driven limousine or anything like that. He had a modest little house in Kalamazoo. Um, so he was always thinking about the best way to use his wealth. And his spiritual um, search basically led him to the idea that money itself is just a form of energy. And in, you can use energy in a wise way or you can use energy in a destructive way. And money is no different. And so for him, it was always about using his money in a constructive way. Uh, and that basically eventuated in his uh, endowing of the, the Fetzer Institute and its programs. Okay. Now, did he did his spirituality help him to become a business success? Do you think? Well, I think yeah. I mean, it gave him um, uh, it gave him a mission, um, a purpose that that was bigger than just simply amassing a big fortune. Uh, he never became controlled by his money in this sense. Um, he also used uh, a variety of different techniques. We talked about the pendulum earlier uh, for making business decisions. Uh, he occasionally used the Ouija board. But primarily, uh, he really felt that his intuition, his ability to make the right decisions and to surround himself with the best people um, had to do with a kind of intuition that he believed was basically God-given, that it was a form of extrasensory perception wasn't infallible. Sometimes he made bad personnel decisions, but on the whole, uh, it was remarkably uh, he allowed him to make immar- remarkably correct decisions. So I think his spirituality gave him confidence, uh, gave him a purpose, and in some cases gave him actual techniques for uh, running his businesses. Right. Okay. Um, did he ever apply his spiritual ideals to his running of the Detroit Tigers house? Well, occasionally, occasionally. Um, we were talking earlier about the transcendental meditation. Uh, he offered classes for his players during the 1974 uh, spring training in Florida in transcendental meditation. Um, for the most part, he always tried to remain a little bit uh, hands-off. Um, he didn't like baseball owners who fraternized with the players and things like that. But occasionally, he would break his own rule. And probably the most famous um, uh, story in this regard has to do with a young pitcher named Mark Fidrich, uh, whose nickname was Mark the Bird Fidrich. And he was a, a pitching sensation for the Detroit Tigers for a while. Um, and Fidrich was very interesting because he had a very unique, a, a unique way of pitching. So when he went up to the mound, he had this uh, kind of ritual he went through. He would talk to the baseball and do all sorts of odd things. Uh, but uh, he would he would pitch strikes. But at a certain point, Fidrich got very self-conscious because all the sports writers were writing about his his odd behavior on the pitching mound. So Fitzer had him uh, come into his office uh, at the Detroit Stadium, 
And together they sat down and Fetzer at that point pulled out his pendulum. And the pendulum was this idea that um, using the power of mind over matter, for Fetzer, you could actually uh, answer questions, yes or no. But what he wanted to demonstrate to uh, Fidrich was that by using the power of the mind, you could actually influence material objects. And so they sat around in his, his office uh, for a couple of hours, basically intently staring at the pendulum. And according to Fidrich's memoirs, his memories, um, they managed to make it move. And the whole point of this for Fetzer was to uh, reinforce to Fidrich that his, his behavior on the mound, his talking to the baseball and all the kind of odd rituals he went through were just simply ways for him to use his mind uh, to influence his pitching and that he should keep it up and he shouldn't be self-conscious about it. And Fidrich basically said he really appreciated the, the intervention of John Fetzer at that point in his pitching career. And he still has, and his worldview was totally different. He wanted to reach a large audience with all his work and books, but that never happened. Is his book still archived today at the Fetzer Institute? Yes, he was very interested in genealogy. Uh, tracing both his father's family. His father died when he was very young, so he never actually knew his father. So he felt one way of getting to know his father was to put together a genealogy of the Fetzer family. And so um, he started working on the genealogy of his father um, during the 1940s. Um, and interestingly enough, he, he used the Ouija board a lot to, um, to come up with leads for him to follow in order to find information for his genealogies. This, of course, was way before Ancestry.com and all the stuff on the Internet that allows you easily to access various records uh, around the world. And then when he finished his father's genealogy, then he did his mother's side of the family, the Wingen family. And the interesting thing about his books, and he published these, these genealogies, uh, was that in the last chapters, he basically sketched out uh, his, his own worldview and his own prescription for the world. And the second genealogy about his mother's family, um, called The Road to Wingen, um, was published in uh, 1971. And just after the, the counterculture and the hippies and all the kind of upsets of the 1960s. And so he was, he was basically commenting on uh, what was going on in the United States. And um, what's interesting is Fetzer was very conservative as a businessman and very conservative politically. And yet he sided with the, the counterculture to some degree, and especially the students, um, talking about how he understood the kind of frustrations they felt with an overly materialistic world, that they really needed something more spiritual in their lives. And so he, he recommended um, a variety of spiritual practices, including uh, meditation. And he really believed that through this kind of um, um, including spirituality in, in one's life, that the divisions of the 1960s could eventually be healed and again, this all gets back to this idea of individual spiritual transformation leading to a new age, to a global spiritual transformation. Okay. Now I'm catching, I'm catching along, following along pretty well now because I wanted to make sure that I understood exactly everything. Uh -huh. um, what did, what is, did exactly, why, why did he keep his spiritual search a secret until late in life. 
why he waits so well i think again it's because um he was he was basically his businesses were located in uh southwest michigan which um tends to be very conservative both politically and religiously um it's the headquarters for the christian reformed church which is a very conservative church in the area so he was concerned <clears throat> that people would have concerns about his alternate spiritual path and that it would uh, basically impact his his businesses in a negative way so he kept it quiet there but i think he also valued his privacy um in order to allow his search to go wherever it would go um i think he was afraid that if he was always kind of exposing his spiritual ideas and talking about them in a larger arena um he wouldn't have mm-hmm. the freedom to explore what he wanted to explore and one of the things he always he kind of taught and this was the one thing he would preach publicly was the idea of freedom of the spirit. Um, he really felt that everybody should be free to you know, practice the spiritual path that they were drawn to. Um, and that ultimately for him, all spiritual paths led to the same result in the end. Um, so it was important that people not be coerced or forced or um, uh, otherwise basically constrained in the kinds of spiritual searchings um, that they did. And this, of course, extended to all traditions. Um, Fetzer began his life as a Christian and to in some degree never stopped being a Christian. Um, he was always very respectful of, of Jesus and of the Gospels, um, talked about Jesus' love as, as probably one of the most potent forms of energy, as he always liked to talk in terms of energy, uh, in the universe. And then later in life, he he would talk about the Christ consciousness as the thing that would basically um, cause the spiritual transformation of the globe. So he was very open and very respectful of other people's religious traditions. And he basically felt that um, this kind of freedom, which he thought was also bound up with the freedoms that were granted in the United States in terms of freedom of religion, uh, were important for the ultimate kind of spiritual transformation of the world. I believe that's going. That's that's definitely going to happen. We have we have a lot of doubters out there, but that definitely will happen. Fessy, what he has done is create a new is a new change for all of us, and I think this is a new beginning for every last one of us. I hope everybody's getting something out of this show today. Um, if you are, like I said, please make sure you share it with everyone. What, why, what were some of the early projects? funded by the Fessa Foundation in the 1970s and 1980s? Well, originally he was very interested in parapsychology. Um, so he, he funded a lot of um, parapsychological research, so clairvoyance and, and psychokinesis, you know, moving things with your mind. Uh, he was also interested in people who are studying uh, phenomena, uh, phenomena of, you know, ghosts and poltergeists and things like that. But... Uh, by the end of the 1970s, um, he felt the research really wasn't achieving that much. And so he shifted the, the funding priorities of the foundation to alternative medicine. And he was very interested in uh, a holistic approach to medicine before, like I said, holism really became a catchword, a, a catchphrase. Um, at that point, he was very interested in something called energy medicine. And this was the idea that you could use subtle spiritual energies uh, to basically either energize or to harmonize um, the body 
And in this way, you could both diagnose and treat disease. And so he was very uh, interested in coming up with technology that would use subtle energies to basically diagnose and cure the body. So in this regard, he was very interested in Eastern traditions of, of healthcare, for example, acupuncture or Ayurvedic medicine with their emphasis on subtle energies like prana and chi. Um, so these were the kinds of things he did in the 70s and 80s. And then when he passed away in 1991, the Fetzer Institute decided to go in a much more kind of mainstream direction. And so they began funding alternative health programs through, for example, the National Institute of Health, uh, looking at the effect of meditation and especially prayer on people's long-term health. And they also funded a, a very influential uh, TV program by Bill Moyers called Healing with the Mind, which played on PBS during the 1990s. And this was one of the first times that uh, a large number of Americans were made aware that um, there were people out there pr practicing alternative medicine uh, in the United States uh, and claiming great results for it. Um, this was the first time, for example, a lot of people were ever exposed to acupuncture uh, in a kind of um, neutral way. So these were the kinds of projects that the Fetzer Institute got into after John Fetzer's death. Right. And how did he ensure his legacy would be carried on to his death? Did, did he well, have he any did more children? Pardon? Did he have any children at all? No, he didn't have any children. Um Okay. He um, so that in in one way f freed him up to uh, in in the last decade of his life he basically liquidated all his businesses, so he sold the Fetzer Broadcasting uh, Corporation. Uh, he eventually sold the Detroit Tigers, uh, which was amazing because he bought the team for about five million dollars in the 1950s, and he sold it for about 53 million dollars in the 1980s. And so this provided the endowment for not only the Fetzer Institute, but also another organization called the Fetzer Memorial Trust. And the Memorial Trust uh, basically has two jobs. Um, one is to preserve the, the legacy of John Fetzer. And so the book I've written is basically uh, one of the results of their, their uh, legacy projects. And the other is they, they fund um, very kind of cutting-edge um, science. And this is science that takes a kind of holistic or uh, emergent properties kind of approach to both physics and biology. Um, and it tends to be very highly technical and, and very interesting. Um, and that's uh, um, uh, funded through something called the Franklin Fetzer Fund. So all these organizations basically are to pursue Fetzer's vision now, the Fetzer Institute, um, especially after 9-11, changed its focus uh, away from alternative health, and it started basically looking into programs that promote spirituality uh, to promote love and forgiveness around the world. And so one set of programs basically looks at um, various groups to uh, promote spirituality among children or promote spirituality among uh, seniors. Uh, another more recent program is all about the connection between spirituality and democracy and using spirituality, people's spirituality to basically uh, overcome the divisions and get people talking together 
uh, about the connections between their spiritual lives and the democracy of the United States. Okay. Now, what has exactly the John Fester Memorial Trust and the Fester Institute been doing to further his legacy and mission? Well, um, one thing is the is the um, the um, uh, preservation of, of John Fetzer's kind of life and times. So, uh, in addition to the book project that I've done, they're also setting up a website where uh, John Fetzer's writings will be uh, available. And if people are interested in in um, eventually looking at this when it's set up. Uh, there's a website called um, infinitepotential.com. And if you go there now, you can actually get a free copy of the, a, a PDF of the preface and, and um, the first chapter of my Fetzer book. Um, the Fetzer Institute itself continues doing um, some alternative health work, but is really much more uh, focused now on... Um, creating the kind of spirituality necessary for, as they put it, um, to create uh, a loving world. Now, what exactly, you wrote this story, and it's marvelous, it is. It's marvelous, and it will definitely get you in tune. You will, it will grab you. What exactly attracted you to his life story the most? Well, um, I'm a professor of American religious history, but I'm really interested in new religious movements and especially new religious movements in the Midwest. And um, I'm fascinated by the ways that individuals basically create their religious or spiritual worldviews. Um, my previous book was uh, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and the religion of biologic living. And that book was focused on uh, John Harvey Kellogg's religious background. He was a seventh day Adventist until he finally left and how he constructed a new worldview after he left the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I'm very interested in how individuals construct their worldviews. Um, and John Fetzer was a great example of this. Um, he left his, uh, the, his Christian roots, not entirely, but uh, to go on the spiritual search and eventually created his own worldview. Um, so for me, uh, he was just an absolutely fascinating figure. And the nice thing is the, the Fetzer Institute has preserved um, uh, just uh, innumerable documents about his life, his letters, his writings, his books, etc. And they allowed me access to this for a year. And I was able to basically read through everything they had in order to create the spiritual biography of John Fetzer. Um, so I found the process just absolutely fascinating. Um, if you don't mind telling us, what is actually your own spiritual belief? Well, um, I tell people I'm kind of um, an agnostic seeker. Um, on the one hand, I'm very attracted to spiritual and religious paths. I'm absolutely fascinated by them. But on the other hand, there's a part of me that's that's also pretty critical about it. Um, so I think I'm in the in the best possible position you could be. I'm a professor of comparative religion, which allows me. And sometimes I, when people ask me what my religion is, I tell them it's comparative religion, um, because it allows me to basically explore the religious lives of other people uh, in a way that um, is is um, allows me to to understand them, um, not to explain them away, but to understand them. 
And that's, I think, the importance of, of comparative religion or religious studies in our colleges and universities is that it trains students. Um, before you're critical of another person's religious tradition, you really need to make the effort to understand it. And sometimes when you understand it better, um, your attitude towards them changes completely. Now, there are some religious traditions out there that probably are beyond the pale and are always going to be judged bad. Um, but I think you need to basically back off and understand it before you judge it. And so that's, that's my goal in my classes, um, to teach people how to understand other people's worldviews uh, and hopefully create a sense of, uh, of tolerance towards other people's worldviews. I'm agree with you on that, Brian. You definitely have to get outside your comfort zone and stop being so stereotypical and understand what other people's religions are because everyone's beliefs are different. So yep. before you judge, um, understand, maybe even do a little research, but people don't do that. They love to prejudge quickly, but you made a valuable point here. Brian, I would love to know where exactly can we get your book from? I mean, I have my copy, <laughs> but for the guest. <laughs> well, the book is available uh, at uh, Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and um, other online booksellers. It's uh, published by Wayne State University Press, and you can get it both as a hard copy and as an ebook. So, what's next, Brian? Are we planning on doing someone else's life story? You have that in mind? Uh, I do. Uh, I have a number of projects uh, on the docket, but uh, I really want to do another spiritual biography. And I'm actually going to reach back into American history and talk about the father of American spirituality, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, wow. Okay, now you really pull. Oh, yeah, you're pulling up some names now. Yes, I'll be glad to have <laughs> you back on. So, um, definitely on him. Um, thank you so much, Brian, for this interview. I really appreciate it. And My pleasure. Please, like I said, share. thank you. So make sure you please pick up the book, John E. Fetzer, and The Quest for the New Age by Brian C. Wilson, and share this show with others out there. We want to make sure everyone gets this understanding and know what's going on. But before I leave you, the truth of the day for my friend and former is this. Allow the rhythm of life to help you dance through life's pressures. When you feel stressed and hassled, you can relieve the pressure by focusing on your core and taking a deep, cleansing breath. It will bring you back to the here and now, allowing the rhythm of life to begin to flow once more. Do not attempt to control the universe of God. You cannot. Relax into the rhythm of life. Trust you are following God's divinely orchestrated plan. Have faith all will fall into place, turning out just right. Release all pressures on yourself by knowing there is always enough time to do exactly all that needs to be done. Today, choose to focus on the rhythm of life as it helps you dance your way through life pressures. Enjoy the day, everyone. And I am Technicia Day. Thank you for listening. I'll see you the next time on The Bright Side with Technicia. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com. 